This is CPR's Colorado Matters. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Students at the Florida High School, where 17 people were killed last week, are organizing a rally to push for more gun control. Colorado's no stranger to school shootings. Of course, there was Columbine. Then in 2013, a shooting at Arapahoe High School, just outside of Denver, exposed a glaring problem, that information about students who might pose a risk wasn't getting shared. The result was a new state law to hold schools liable for missing warning signs. But have things really changed at Colorado schools? Bill Woodward is a former police officer, now with CU, who trains schools on how to prevent violence. Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you. You were part of the team that evaluated what happened at Arapahoe High School when Claire Davis died four years ago. Her father, Michael Davis, said the evaluations that were done were his gift to the state so people could learn more from the tragedy. This process is no longer about our precious daughter, Claire, nor is it about Carl Pearson, who was a teenager in crisis who we believe would have made very different choices if a helping hand had reached out from a system that was designed to not miss the opportunities to help him. This process is now about the next student in crisis who's on the brink of hurting themselves or others. I want to stress that you're working with dozens of schools. I don't want to just focus on Arapahoe High School. But the fundamental question is, in the schools you work with, are they now better prepared to deal with a situation like what happened to Claire Davis? I certainly think they are, and I'm really doing this interview to honor Claire Davis. Um, This is what she and her family would have wanted to have happen, that we learn. And so I do think schools are getting more and more prepared. In fact, we're working with 44 schools right now through our Safe Community, Safe School program to help them better prepare for these kinds of situations. What's the biggest barrier you've seen to being able to recognize and deal with potential threats out there? Well, I think the biggest barrier is the climate of the school, um, because I think sometimes schools are just thinking in terms of of working with um, students, helping students out. And sometimes when you're looking at someone who's made a threat, you have to change to the Secret Service model, which says, you need to be inquisitive and and very um, investigative and skeptical in your information gathering. Hmm. In Co- Florida, um, there were warning signs, um, and a big issue in Colorado was communication, staff and teachers being afraid to share what they knew or fearing the school would look vulnerable if they did. Is that still an issue in Colorado? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, there's always been try- – there's that huge balance of trying to make sure that people share the information but also keep su- student information confidential. But the attorney general um, has really done a wonderful job of putting out an opinion now that reminds schools that for safety, public safety matters, that they have a, almost a duty to share that information and that uh, that sharing – of information is going to be critical to keeping a school safe. Hmm. And what do you tell schools? um, How do you help them communicate better? You know, I think the biggest thing about our Safe Community Safe School program is that it builds on what we call adaptive leadership. And that's as opposed to technical leadership where you just say, well, this is a 
this is a problem. Like if you were at a doctor and the doctor said, well, you have high blood pressure and gave you a pill, that would be a technical solution. Hmm. The adaptive solution to that would be that, well, let's look at your exercise program and what you eat and what is your diet and what is your stress level. So, too, schools are also being trained in our Safe Community, Safe School project uh, to do an adaptive look at what's going on in the school. All facets of that organization and structure need to play a role in keeping the school safe. Hmm. Um, The new law that went into effect, the Claire Davis Act, increases liability for schools that miss threats. CPR News reported last summer that schools are having a hard time complying with this, and that's in part because there's no real definition of what it takes to provide reasonable care required by the law, and that's to avoid a murder or an assault. What's your assessment of the difference, if any, that this law has made? Oh, I think it's made a huge difference. Before this and after Columbine, I can't tell you how many schools didn't even want to talk about this and didn't want to spend the time to sort of figure it out. And while the law may seem a little heavy-handed, it has certainly gotten the attention of schools now. And now schools seem to be much more interested in figuring that stuff out. Yes, there are problems, and those issues are going to have to be figured out. But now, at least, there's a real attentiveness to these issues of school safety. How do they feel about the law in general? Oh, I think they really hate it, um, and they think that it was unfairly imposed on them. Um, but I think it's the only thing that got their attention. So there's been an increase in threat assessments. Um, do they have real value? Do you think it means schools are figuring out whether certain students could pose a danger and then doing something about it? I think threat assessment is great when, it, when it's done correctly. If you look at our report, that one was not done correctly. But when done well, I think threat assessments really bring to bear either helping services for a student who may need a lot of assistance, or if they're a more serious kind of a threat, then bring around control, uh, control processes to external controls for that student so that they stay out of trouble and that you monitor them at all times. So that threat assessment tells you what of the, there are three typologies for shooters, which of the three typologies this person probably is. And then based on that, helps you build a plan around that person. And I'd be real interested to see if that happened in Florida. Can you give me an example of when you've seen these threat assessments work? Oh, I think every day I've, I've sat in the ones in Jefferson County do a great job of very carefully, not only building a, a good threat assessment and being having a skeptical uh, information gathering attitude during a threat assessment, but then also building a vortex of information and a really good plan for managing that that uh, student who's having those kinds of problems. Depending on the type of problems, building a plan that's really tailored for that student. What do you mean by vortex? A vortex is just the place where all the information is gathered so that one person is aware of all the information about this particular student and then keeps track of that information. And if a red, another red flag emerges, then bring that student back in for another reassessment and look at that plan for that student and then adjust the plan as needed. And yet the fear is that all of this could go too far and result in profiling kids. How do you avoid that kind of bias? You know, I, I agree it's possible for that to happen, but I think we under-profiled in the past. And so I just think this is moving us 
toward a better balance, but we always have to be careful not to overprofile. Um, otherwise, it's it's totally unfair to students. So, but at least it feels to me like we're moving closer to the better balance. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Bill Woodward is a former police officer who's now with CU. He works with schools on how to prevent shootings like the one last week in Florida. And there were videos taken of students during the shooting in Florida. Some were begging for changes to gun laws as they were trapped inside the school. But with all the preparations in the world, uh, can schools really do much to prevent this kind of violence? Or is this really about mental health care, gun laws, something else? I think it's, again, it's a combination of things. No one, there is no silver bullet, um, uh, speaking metaphorically. Uh, but I think gun law changes may well be needed. I just think we have to, we have to do what we can do now, and we can do things now like our Safe Community Safe School project. We can make sure Safe to Tell gets well trained in schools, so kids know how to use anonymous reportings. Right. This and is the can, program where students are asked to report these things and can be anonymous when they do that. Exactly. And, and, and that the information sharing is critical to that whole process of adaptive leadership. The other important thing to note about Florida is the shooter wasn't a current student. And that raises questions about how he got in, whether things like metal detectors could have stopped him. Do you talk to schools about those kinds of measures um, and threats from people that are outside of the school community? Right. That's the purpose of the planning team that's developed in the Safe Community, Safe Schools uh, project. And other projects do, do the same thing. You have to have a team that works together to figure out all of those issues. And the State Patrol has an infra- critical infrastructure protection team that will come out and tell you about your infrastructure and score your school. Hmm. And so that's a wonderful resource we have here in Colorado. But then you have to look at Surveys of the students and surveys of the staff and looking at how Infinite Campus is handling information and looking at all of the information you need to keep a school safe. It can't be stovepiped and it can't be sort of assigned to one person to do that. This is a team teamwork that needs to occur. What's one thing you've learned from surveys in terms of how safe students and staff feel at school? Well, I think depending on the survey, we've seen in schools where teachers were totally unaware that some students had actually seen other students with guns on the way to or from schools. And so surveying kids and getting their input into this process is critically important to have those early red flags and to use those opportunities to get ahead of potential problems. Just to wrap up here, how prevalent is the mindset still that it could never happen here despite all the recent shootings? I wonder if you still run into that thinking. Yes, we we see that thinking all the time, and I think it's changing, but I do think people feel like it will never happen in their schools, that they have the perfect school, and so it could never possibly happen. And so then it is when, when somebody has a, a red flag or somebody says somebody's got a gun or something like that, it's not taken very seriously because if you believe it can't happen there, then you sort of ignore those kinds of pieces of data. Bill, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. 
Bill Woodward is the Director of Training and Technical Assistance at CU's Center for the Study and Prevention of Violence. He works with schools on how to prevent shootings like the one last week in Florida. There's less snow than usual in Colorado, and it's really extreme in some parts of the state. One Boulder scientist says it's not a fluke. Snowpack, this thing we consider a given in the West, is disappearing. Ski resorts are closing down. Reservoirs drying up. Wildfire seasons are getting worse. Not long ago, scientist Jane Zelikova and her friend grabbed a camera and went on a mission. They wanted to know what was really happening with snowpack in the Rockies and what to expect in the future. Their short film about it is out now, and it's called The End of Snow. Jane, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's not a mystery that there's less snow in Colorado than there has been in the past. So what question were you trying to answer in this film? Well, I think uh, as a scientist, I'm always curious and observing the world around me. And when I was a graduate student here at CU Boulder in Colorado, I moved here to ski and I really enjoyed the snow. But I was noticing in my 15 years of living here that the ski conditions and the length of the ski season was changing. And though I wasn't studying um, snow specifically at that point, I couldn't help but wonder what was happening and whether we could use information Um, scientific and otherwise, to try to figure out what was happening in the past, what's happening now, and use those data to predict what's going to happen in the future. So you're wondering whether what you were watching was reflective of of what was actually happening out there. Exactly. So it's this thing where you you like will talk to friends and you'll make an observation. Oh, it's really um, not a very good ski season this year. But that's just an observation. And I wanted to really dig into that and see if all of these observations I was making uh, were actually a trend that was um, happening beyond just my backyard. So what does the future look like? Well, I think the future is certainly going to be more variable. There's no question that we have years when we have great snow like last year and years like this year where we have uh, maybe 50 to 60 percent of our average snowpack. And the issue with climate change is that while it's actively snowing outside the window right now and I am cold, that doesn't mean that climate change isn't happening. It's this uh, increase in variation, having more extreme events happen more frequently, having really big snow years followed by very dry years. And that frequency increasing is how we sort of know that climate change is happening. And you found there's a pretty good way to predict what the Rockies will look like by the end of the century, and it had to do with pulling out sediment from lakes that are high up in the mountains. Describe that. Yeah. So uh, lakes in the mountains are sort of this repository of information. So as uh, plants decay and animals die, the sediments or the decomposing material gets deposited at the bottom of these lakes. And um, if you pull up those lake bottoms in a what we call a sediment core, it has these layers just like maybe a tree core might with tree rings that tell you what the different climate conditions were like, except that these sediment cores tell you the recorded history of 10,000 years ago. 
Um, and I worked with uh, a scientist at University of Wyoming whose name is Brian Schumann to go out into these lakes where he works in the Snowy Range Mountains in Wyoming and look at the lake sediment cores and try to figure out what the climate was like in those mountains 10,000 years ago. And you call these sediment cores uh, time capsules. Yeah, I think they're sort of exactly like um, a repository of information. So if you were in in high school and you put a, a time capsule together for a future generation, you might put things in there like cassette tapes. I'm aging myself here, but cassette tapes and maybe yearbooks and things that matter to you at that time period. And if someone pulls it out 100 years from now, they would get a sense of what your world was like. Well, lake sediment cores basically do that, but they're recording the type of vegetation that was there, um, the type of animals that lived there. And you can look at that and figure out what the climate was like, because certain types of plants only grow in certain kinds of climates. Can you paint a picture for us of what the future could look like? I mean, do you have that image in your mind? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I see a future that is less predictable, uh, which isn't really a very satisfying way to describe the future. But I think uh, what I see is that these permanent snowfields that we have in the mountains that are basically the source of water for the streams and rivers that flow down from the mountains and are the sources of water for cities like Boulder and um, Denver, that those permanent snowfields are becoming less permanent and smelting in the summer. So what that means to me is that right now we have a pretty predictable water source that is going away pretty quickly. So these permanent snowfields melting earlier or completely melting over the summer means we don't get the continual input of water that we would have been relying on. Uh, that's a huge deal. And then, of course, there's also, you know, the industry that the state depends on. Exactly. In a state like Colorado, where I live, uh, it's a really big deal. And I know that water conservation boards and water planners are absolutely aware of this and trying to figure out a way to plan for it. But it's a really big challenge when the thing that's happening is more unpredictability. Your investigation took you to the town of Gothic near Crested Butte, where you met a man, very interesting man named Billy Barr. He's known as the Snow Guardian because he measures snow outside his cabin, and he's been doing it for a really, really long time. And there's this great scene where you go into his house. Oh, when were you born? 78. Oh, see, there you go. Was it in summer? No, it was in March. Let's see how much snow you had in March. And then he points out this notebook with thousands of numbers in it. There we are. The low was minus 21 and a half Celsius. That's minus good. 7. That's good Russian cold. Seven and three quarter inches for the day. That's great. That's good powder day. We had 80 inches on the ground that day. The day you were born, there was 80 inches. I remember that day because it was 80 inches. And this guy has books and books years and years of data. Uh, we interviewed Billy a couple years ago. You can find that at CPR.org. I'm curious, who do you, who do you most want to see this film um, and hear Billy's message about the snowpack receding in his backyard? Yeah, that's a really good question. And Billy's an incredible human and a really wonderful character to kind of bring this message uh, to audiences. So, I think when Morgan uh, Heim and I, and Morgan is the director of the film, were thinking about how to make a film that would resonate beyond our siloed communities, I really wanted to get 
uh, a film out to people that we don't usually reach when we publish scientific papers and people that might have some skepticism about climate change or might um, not really consider it a problem or might not even think about it on a day-to-day basis. And a character like Billy is so wonderful because he wasn't measuring snow in his backyard to try to prove anything. He was just living in the mountains by himself, bored. For eight months of the year, he was basically alone. And it was just something to do, something that he could do every day. Um, And over time, over the 45 years that he's been measuring snow, all of a sudden we have this incredible record of a place in the mountains in Colorado and exactly what's been happening there day to day, winter after winter for many years. And yet the film screens this weekend at the Environmental Film Festival, doesn't that sort of preach to the choir? It absolutely preaches to the choir. And I think every time I've spoken at a film screening, um, like it, it premiered at the Boulder Adventure Film Festival. It's played at uh, Telluride Mountain Film and at Banff. And when I've spoken to the audiences, I've been really clear about saying, I'm so happy that you saw the film, but you're not actually the target audience here. What I really want is I want this film to be a vehicle to start conversations with people we don't usually talk to, exactly not our choir. And so what we're doing after this, well, this film is going to be playing at the Colorado Environmental Film Festival, but we're also releasing it online. Um, on our website, and anyone can go and watch it for free. And hopefully it starts the kind of conversations I hope to have with people, both about the science of climate change, the science of snow climate work, and also just how we as communities in Colorado and beyond can start preparing for the future that's less predictable than today. And your desire to reach a broader audience is partially what takes you to see a rancher in Wyoming in the film. You want to learn what he's doing with snow. Talk about what he's doing and how unusual it is. Yeah, so the third chapter of the film, we focus on a rancher named Freddie Botour, and he lives in Big Piney, Wyoming, a very conservative place in the middle of a very conservative state. And he is doing some very progressive things with his land. Um, He's doing a method of grazing cattle that is actually promotes the storage of carbon in soils. And storing carbon in soil is one of these really wonderful climate mitigation methods that we have available to us today. So what basically he's doing is he's moving his cattle around his land very frequently so they don't graze the grasses down all the way to the roots. And that way the grasses can keep growing. And as they grow, they capture carbon from the atmosphere and move it into the soil. Essentially, plants are the straws that suck CO2 from the air and move it underground. Mm. And so while he's not a typical... uh, type of climate activist that you would envision, he's doing very real things on his land um, that are actually mitigating climate change. And the reason that I'm really excited about that is because I think if we're going to make real progress in this country around climate change, we have to build a more diverse coalition of people. And that includes people like farmers and ranchers who maybe today don't feel like they're a part of the solution and in some instances may feel vilified by the climate movement because agriculture is responsible for so many emissions. And I I think it's really important to show people that are doing things that maybe don't look like me Mm. and don't talk like me and don't have a PhD in climate change, but that are doing real things with their land um, and being amazing land stewards and also producing food that we eat. You made this film with a friend, Morgan Heim, and I understand it was an intentional decision to have you be the main character in the film, partly because you're a woman. Why was that important? Yeah, so I 
for me, I I didn't want to be in the film. I didn't necessarily feel super comfortable being in front of the camera, but I do think it's really important to show what a scientist looks like and that image isn't uh, a man in a lab coat and largely a white man in a lab coat, which is the image that we as a society kind of have today. And so part of this was changing the perspective of what a scientist looks like and that a scientist doing climate change research and skiing in the backcountry and hauling equipment and digging snow pits can be a woman and a younger woman at that too. Jane, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Jane Zelikova is an ecologist who lives in Boulder and stars in the short film The End of Snow. It screens Saturday at the Colorado Environmental Film Festival in Golden and will soon be available online for free. See the trailer at CPR.org. When we come back, Japanese Americans were horribly mistreated during World War II, and yet they joined the war effort. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Our next guest fought with one of the most decorated units in American history, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team in World War II. CPR's Ryan Warner has the story of Henry Sakaguchi. And a warning, it contains some graphic descriptions. When I met Sakaguchi, who's now 97, he was wearing a hat that said, Go for Broke. That was the combat team's motto. What does that mean to you, Go for Broke? It means to go all out. Sakaguchi's parents immigrated from Japan. He grew up on a farm near Brighton, north of Denver. And things changed for many Japanese Americans after the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941 by Japan. Shortly after, President Franklin Roosevelt asked Congress to declare war. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The following February, Roosevelt ordered the relocation of people of Japanese ancestry. They were rumored to be spies, plotting to sabotage the U.S. war effort. So with an executive order, about 120,000 people were forced into internment camps, many of them American citizens. Sakaguchi says his family was lucky to have been living in Colorado. In our community, there wasn't too much prejudice like on the West Coast. Most of our neighbors were German descent and knew. The elementary school where we went through, oh, I'd say about 15 or 20 of us Japanese-Americans. Colorado's then-governor, Ralph Carr, called the president's order unconstitutional, quoting, An American citizen of Japanese descent has the same rights as any other citizen. If you harm them, you must first harm me. A position that cost Carr his political career. Of course, there was an internment camp in Colorado, the Grenada War Relocation Center, also known as Camp Amache. It's not a place Henry Sakaguchi went. He says his family was able to stay on their farm. Then, in 1943, at the age of 22, Sakaguchi joined the U.S. Army. I felt patriotism, and also I wanted to prove my loyalty to America. He was assigned to the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, a unit made up almost entirely of second-generation Japanese-Americans, except that most of the leadership was white. Sakaguchi says that led to some tension, but one commander had this advice. If somebody calls you a Jap or something, says, don't back down, says, fight for your rights. 
After basic training in Mississippi, his unit went off to Europe, Italy specifically. In 1944, Sakaguchi was assigned to the field artillery as a radio mechanic. He would fight in both Italy and France, and he was grateful he never had to be in the infantry. Being in the artillery, I didn't know how lucky I was until we got in the actual battle, and I saw what the infantry was going through. One day, he spotted a trailer near his command post. It had a canvas covering. I got curious, and I lifted up the canvas, and there was a body of one of our infantrymen. And from the chest up, it was gone. Eventually, Sakaguchi's battalion advanced into Germany. I understand your battalion actually liberated a subcamp of Dachau, in May of 1945. When we got near uh, Dachau, we had stopped for lunch uh, near a large, long shed. And um, just on the other side of the shed, we found about 150 bodies just stacked up like cordwood in their prison-striped uh, those uniforms uh, that are, yeah, you know, and could you tell they were just skin and bone, you know. In January 1946, the army discharged Sakaguchi. He got married soon after, went to technical school to study radio and TV repair. He did that work for most of his life. He had four children, and with one of them, returned to Europe in 2012. On that trip, Sakaguchi searched for a church in the French village of Bifontaine, where he'd had a harrowing experience in the war. There were steps on on each side of the doorway. As we were about halfway up the steps, a bullet had gone right over our heads and hit the side of the wall right next to us, probably about two, three inches right above our heads. So we ducked down behind the stone wall and <laughs> crawled up to, to get inside the church the, church had two big double doors when we were inside, and there were about maybe 150 people in there. Villagers? East citizens, yeah. Close call? A little bit too close. After the war, Henry Sakaguchi received the Congressional Medal of Honor and the French Legion of Honor. As we said, he's now 97 and lives in Denver. How often is the war on your mind these days? Every, every once in a while, I think about Knowing about the experience and and wondering how the buddies I knew and how I think about them, how they were doing. Sakaguchi spoke with us as we document the lives of World War II survivors living in Colorado. With producer Stephanie Wolf, I'm Ryan Warner. For years, the concept of gender was painful for Boulder performance artist and poet Andrea Gibson. But now it's something to celebrate. Gibson has released a new book called Take Me With You, along with an audio collection called Hey Galaxy. And Gibson's on the line from New Orleans. Andrea, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You see gender as an evolving process, and you've talked about experiencing a constant coming out. What do you mean by that? You know, I think the first time I came out, I came out as bisexual, and then a few years later I was um, I, I came out as gay, and then from there queer, and then some years later I, uh, I 
started recognizing myself as as genderqueer, which um, or non-binary. I I've never quite felt like a man or a woman, and um, the process of that over the years has been uh, more liberating as the years go on uh, than painful for at least me me personally. Um, I I've started to see gender as a a fun process of of becoming more of who I am. How did you find that identity? Hmm. You know, somebody said the word genderqueer to me about 10 years ago. And as soon as I heard that word, I felt like I knew a part of myself, or at least I had language for myself that I had never previously had. I I didn't know there was an option um, to choose a different box than the ones that had been prescribed to me previously. So I think um, that's also connects to the blessing of having poetry in my life, how much language can influence um, how we interpret ourselves and how we get to understand ourselves. Your book is filled with aphorisms, one-liners, and other very short poems, but you convey so much with these brief pieces. Let's have you read one for us. And I should say these pieces don't have titles. So um, could you read from page 154? Yeah, sure. I think maybe that the stars I saw the first time I was punched are the same stars I saw the first time I was kissed, and I can find my way home by all of it. Much of your writing comes from a place of being different and sometimes being hurt or bullied. What prompted this poem? You know, it's funny. I was thinking about this poem, and and the first person I ever kissed was actually brothers with the first person who ever punched me. Mm-hmm. And I, I was thinking about how that first kiss, I actually got dizzy with it. The kind of stars that I had seen happen to the kids in the Brady Bunch. I thought that really isn't true, but truly, my first my first kiss. Even though he was a boy, he ended up growing up to be a preacher, actually, and I ended up growing up to be queer. Um, but it, it was a wonderful kiss, and then. A year later, when his brother punched me because I threw his bike in the woods, I, I saw sort of those same stars. But the poem is essentially a metaphor about how we can find our, our way home or find our way uh, to the best versions of our, you know, ourselves, our growth um, through even the traumatic things that happen in our lives. You know, I look at things like illness and, and grief and um, loss whenever I can put a, a lens on it being part of the journey that will ultimately lead me to, um, you know, my most uh, joyful, evolved self. Um, and then I can, I can think of it differently. And so that's what that piece speaks to. You go by the pronouns they, them, and their. But you've said my pronouns haven't even been invented yet. Why are pronouns so important? <laughs> you know, um, I, I think that everybody has a, a different relationship with them. I have a, a lot of, um, you know, people in my life who pronouns are, are very, very important to and some people who will say, you know, call me whatever. Sometimes that's true and sometimes it isn't. For myself, um, I, I don't really flinch at any pronouns. I don't have a, a pained experience with anybody using any pronoun for me, but um, that's not really common. And I do love the idea, somebody said once, that uh, there should be a pronoun for every person on the planet, or maybe we just stop using them altogether, or, or there are as many genders as there are people on the planet. 
And life's challenges aren't just about gender identity. In your writing, you capture both the individual and the universal nature of how we experience the world. I'd like you to read the poem on page 166. This year, everyone I know had a broken heart. Everyone I know cried in private on their way home from a party. And not everyone I know woke up the next morning. And not everyone I know wanted to, even though they did. And this year, I stood inside of a redwood tree and thought, this is the sweetest day of my whole life. And two months later, I was sobbing in a parking lot, thinking, this is the worst day of my whole life. And a few months later, I was dancing in my living room, saying, this is the best day of my whole. Have you ever seen the seed of a redwood tree? So tiny. And all of that everything inside of it. All of this everything inside of us. What were you thinking about when you wrote this? You know, it was New Year's Eve, and I was I was thinking about, uh, you know, what the whole year had held, and also thinking about that moment when I was in California standing inside of a redwood tree, and, and the sense of just being the tiniest thing in the whole universe, and yet in, you know, my tiny little body, uh, what, what, what lived in there, all that made up who I was, uh, the pain, um, the grief, and the the bliss, the, you know, whoever I kissed that year, all of it is contained at once. And, and not to mention, I heard once that we are every age we have ever been. So there I am standing and I'm still, you know, everything that happened when I was three, everything that happened when I was 16 is still all living inside of me and, and how small I am relatively. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with poet and performance artist Andrea Gibson of Boulder. Gibson's new book, Take Me With You, is a collection of short poems about love, life, and growing up. The ideas of walls and safety have been on many people's minds lately. You have a poem that might make some people think about walls just a little bit differently. Uh, Let's hear your poem on page 50. I know some people build their safety with walls. Me, I'm into demolition, whatever tears the walls down. I have a hard time kissing without that kind of dust in the air. I see a wrecking ball and see a wedding ring. I think, look at the size of that stone. So what walls do you want to tear down? In this piece, I'm, I'm speaking specifically to uh, the the walls between, you know, that might get in the way of our intimacy, but there are many other walls I want to tear down as well. I've just always been someone uh, who feels safer the more transparent I'm being and the more transparent uh, somebody around me is being. So, for example, on a first date, uh, I might be inclined to want to know every single thing about the person, you know, whether or not, whether or not they preferred sledding over building snowmen when they were a kid and and it's hard for me to to mute myself and and not just you know tell my whole life story in those first moments and I've been that way since I was I was very young I, I just wanted to know everything and I've, I've been thinking about you know our the place we are currently politically and and how much so much of the destruction I think is is rooted in hiding and and what we're uh, you know what transparencies aren't out there what we're not being told. You write a lot about activism, Um, for example, in the poem on page 80. Um, Why don't you read that one? Okay. 
I want to demand that luck not be the thing that keeps us alive. I want to stoke the holy fire of my own impatience and burn the word tolerance. Tolerance is a murderer. Tolerance shines the bullet. No tolerant person or system of government is an advocate for love or life or peace. Hmm. Tolerance uh, is such an interesting word. I've thought about that a lot after reading this poem. It's a pretty strong indictment of that word um, that lots of people use to guide their choices. Talk more about your take on the word tolerance. When I think of the word tolerance, I I think about, um, you know, uh, being able to stomach something. And when I think about being able to stomach something, I I think, okay, so that thing doesn't make you sick. So uh, the idea of celebrating, um, for example, if I'm walking through the airport and I'm holding my partner's hand, I don't want to think of it as a success that people aren't getting sick to their stomach when they they see us. Um, I think that that does damage to my spirit to um, to think that's a, a great thing. First of all, because I know for many years I did, you know, if I was walking around in a new city with a short haircut and people were kind to me, um, I think that I, I really soaked up that kindness and was super grateful for it and maybe too grateful because I think um, in a, a more peaceful world, um, I would just expect it. And I think people should be expecting kindness. I also, I think it's damaging to the person um, who thinks that tolerance is the ultimate uh, goal. I think celebration and appreciation is is what we um, should be striving for. And I think ultimately, you know, there's this this idea that, you know, tolerance at least wouldn't kill. And and I, I think that that could be argued um, because of how it all dominoes and dominoes through culture. Mm. Your poetry is often inspired by childhood memories. What advice would you give to young people, especially those that feel particularly different? Mm. Yeah, great question. I think about that a lot. And I think I would say surround yourself with as many people as you can who will love and, and celebrate you for exactly who you are now and and who you are along your journey and process and also surround your pe- yourself with with people that are excited about you becoming somebody different than who you are because we're all in an eternal state of becoming hopefully and then um I also uh, would just encourage a lot of gentleness um, towards uh, oneself. I I wish that was something that was very different about our culture. I wish we grew up with many lessons on how to be kind to ourselves and to specifically speak to ourselves kindly, because that really uh, shifts the impact of, you know, the unkind things that other people might be sending our way. Do you think young people growing up today, um, is it easier for them, those that feel different um, today than, say, 20 years ago? I think it's both because I I think that there are ways that uh, social media, for example, can offer support to people. For example, young uh, queer kids, I think, um, having resources where they can go on and see uh, the lives of people really thriving um, in the LGBTQ community, seeing people happy and living wonderful lives is really important. Um, But at the same time, I think 
for example, if we just want to speak to social media, that also can be a really painful space for youth. Um, there's a lot of bullying that just happens online. And there's also sort of a, a false idea of what people's lives are. You know, you look on somebody's page and think everything's perfect and you're the only one that's had an awful day. And, and that, can be, um, that can be painful in itself. Let's hear one more poem before we let you go. Please read the poem on page 144. What I know about living is that the pain is never just ours. Every time I hurt, I know the wound is an echo. So I keep listening for the moment when the grief becomes a window, when I can see what I could not see before. Andrea, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Boulder poet and performance artist Andrea Gibson has a new book called Take Me With You, as well as an audio collection called Hey Galaxy. Finally today, new music from a Denver choral group. The group Cantora's latest album is called Infinity. It's a collection of music by the contemporary Norwegian composer Kim Andre Arneson. This is the title track. The words are about looking into the night sky, wondering about the distance to the farthest star, and contemplating mortality. Arneson is 37 and has written pieces embraced by vocal groups around the world. Cantori liked his work so much, they invited him to be their composer-in-residence a few years back. He composed four pieces for Cantori, including this one. the Denver choral group Cantori from their latest album, Infinity. That's our show for today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Andrew Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.